Do turn in your Bibles to that passage we had read a moment ago from Acts chapter 8. Edward Lawrence was a physicist working in the Massachusetts Institute for Technology, MIT, back in the 1960s. He was working on a computer modeling weather systems, and he devised a program which, once you typed in certain meteorological observations, could calculate, at least in theory, what subsequent weather patterns were going to be. One day, he made a mistake. He had intended to type into the computer a piece of data consisting of six decimal places, 0.506127. He accidentally inserted only the first three digits, 0.506. He was a thorough researcher. He decided to run the program again with the correct number this time in place. And although intuition assured him that such a small error, only one part in 1,000 could not possibly change the results significantly. Well, to his amazement, however, when the computer plotted out the revised weather pattern, it was completely different from the earlier graph. Lawrence couldn't believe his eyes. As he later explained, it was as if a tiny atmospheric disturbance in Peking, no bigger than or greater than the beat of a butterfly's wing, could a week later give rise to a force 12 hurricane in New York. Hence the name of his discovery. It was called the butterfly effect. Created a lot of scientific interest, explains, I suppose, why weathermen get it so wrong. It really isn't their fault. It's some butterfly somewhere that they hadn't factored into their calculations. Well, the butterfly effect is interesting when it comes to weather calculations. It doesn't necessarily transfer into human relationships or human actions. Most of our lives, yours and mine, are more predictable than that. True, we do have an effect on other people. The people around us are affected by our actions, either for better or for worse. But mostly our actions and lives serve to cause pretty limited ripples on the ocean of humanity. We cause a splash, some bigger than others, with a few ripples, but they're quickly absorbed and they die away. But some lives, some lives make a bigger splash the ripples of which we are still feeling today. Stevens was such a life. One beat of his heart. The last beat of his heart. Prompts, we're told here, a great persecution of the church, which led to a great dispersion of the Christians that led to a great expansion of the Word, the spread of the gospel, and a great advancement of the kingdom. There is no question that we are today still seeing the ripple effects of that one heartbeat. I call it the Stephen effect. You heard it first here. But that last heartbeat of Stephen's began the next wave of movement in the, Christian, in the Christian movement. 
Jesus had said, you remember back in chapter 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see that happening after that one last heartbeat. Not only that, but a new character is introduced to us. Did you notice? Uh, Proving of the execution of Stephen, a new character who is going to be significant in the story of the church and in the story of that expansion, Saul, who became Paul, approved of his execution. So our story tonight begins with Stephen giving the last full measure of devotion to his Lord, giving his life. And the opening scene is a scene of great pathos as the fallen is claimed by his friends and buried with due respect and with great mourning. Meanwhile, we're told, Saul was ravaging the church. The language speaks of physical injury as well as oppression and indignity. He was ravaging the church like a wild animal. He was attacking the church, going for the neck, seeking to destroy the church. And when we read these accounts, it's tempting to think that this kind of persecution and that such suffering that flows from this kind of persecution is reserved only for faraway places or in days long, long ago. Sometimes we read the stories, don't we, of the martyrs, and martyrdom is shrouded in such a kind of romantic mythology that we, we immediately distance ourselves. You and I sitting in this room, you've heard preachers say all the time, here we are in our comfortable, affluent Western civilization, and so on, and we don't know anything about what these people knew in the first century. I would say, as a rule, don't ever believe preachers when they make that kind of generalized comment. Because it's actually not true. We do live in the same kind of world as they lived in then. We face the same kind of struggles as the saints of old struggled with. Ideologies that are opposite to the Christian message. Influences and individuals who are hostile to the Christian message. When you read the book of Acts, yes, there are these great outbursts like Paul's of Christians being hauled off and killed as a result of it. But actually, if you read the book of Acts, you discover that most of the time there's a whole variety of sufferings and miseries and setbacks and frustrations and irritations that that highlight the, the scope of the struggle that we face. It helps to stir us up to faithfulness. It, it reveals a spiritual dimension of even the smallest of our daily struggles. Enables us to face the mundane costs of discipleship with faith-filled hope in God. Luke, in his, in his first volume, has prepared us for the outcome of our faith. In that first volume, he reports Jesus' regular reminders to his followers that following him costs something. That invariably it costs, either something greater or lesser. Usually what it costs is proportionate to what our faith is able to bear. There are those who are called to make the extreme sacrifice, and they're given the capacity to do that. They're given the faith to do that. But when it comes down to the, mil- the costs of discipleship, they are proportionate to the faith that we have as believers. And there are all kinds of costs. Jesus warned his disciples that their, that their witness would meet with shut minds, closed doors, judicial trials, even mob violence and civil disorder. They would have to face, he went on to say, 
hostile words, false accusations, slanderous criticism, derisive laughter, sneering contempt, and elitist dismissal. We aren't a million of miles away from that kind of thing. We all face challenges, whether it's the subtle put-down or verbal hostility or even dismissive tolerance, which we face most of the time in our society. Stephen's last heartbeat led to gospel growth. And this middle section of Acts, which begins in chapter 8, 1 and ends in chapter 11, 19, is bracketed by statements about Stephen. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church. And then in Acts 11, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word. What we have here is a record of the effect of the word of God. It's a, the word of God has a, is having an, an impact, not only in the people who believe it, but now on regions beyond. I have three points for you this evening, because in this story we see people gossiping the gospel. We see some people getting the gospel. They get it. And we see other people guarding the gospel. Set of G's for you this evening. Gossiping the gospel. Here is Saul then, and he is rising to the top of his profession on the back of the persecution and oppression of the, the church. So Saul's sadistic cruelty, we're told, right at the very beginning, Satan's rage is directed against the ecclesia, the church, verse 1. Stephen himself has used this word in chapter 7. He used this word of the people of God in Moses' day and called them the church, the ecclesia, the congregation in the wilderness. The people who were in the wilderness with Moses were the church of that period. They were the people of God. So he uses that language. In other words, these people are going to be, who are going to be scattered and persecuted belong to the people of God. These Jewish believers in Jesus stand alongside all other believers in Jesus, Jew and Gentile, as being the one people of God. We're being told here that Saul of Tarsus is actually opposed to the true Israel of God, those who had welcomed and received their Messiah Jesus. And you can see what he's aiming to do. He's like a relentless hunter. The language is that of a wild animal on, on the hunt. And he's determined to dismantle the infrastructure of the early church. We're told earlier in Acts that the church met from house to house. And so here is Saul going from house to house, dragging off believers to prison. Later on, Paul himself will in his later life, confessed that in his former life, how he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. There was blood on Saul's hands. No wonder they were hesitant to receive him fully as a member of the church when he was converted. They were always suspicious of him. He had been the chief enemy of the people of God. What happens for his persecution? We're told that everybody was scattered almost like a repeat of the Tower of Babel, only this time, this time it's a, a positive reversal of Babel. Here the people of God are scattered. Up to this point, Christianity has been 
has been focused on Jerusalem, localized in Jerusalem. And that was important. That was an important beginning. That's exactly what the prophets had said would happen. That in Jerusalem, in the temple in Jerusalem, the Messiah would come, that the light would shine, the glory would come back to Jerusalem. And there the glory of the Lord would be seen. And he was. The glory of the Lord was seen in the person of the Messiah. But the prophets had also said that the Messiah was not only to be in Jerusalem, but from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Zion, the people of God in Jerusalem, was going to, the people were going to grow and spread until they filled the entire earth with the glory of God. This is where it begins. The effect of Stephen's death is like scattering seed. What is scattered is not only the people, do you notice, but what is scattered is the Word, because those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Just ignore the word preaching for a moment. It shouldn't be there. It's a bad translation, and I have no idea why they put it in there. Those who were scattered went about gospeling or gossiping the gospel, as Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, because these were not official preachers. These were not ordained men. These were ordinary believers. These were not the leaders of the church. Do you notice it makes that very clear? The leaders of the church were the apostles, but everybody on that day was scattered except the apostles, we're told. Everybody except the apostles. The leaders weren't scattered. They were still in Jerusalem. But here are the ordinary people, and what are they doing? They're acting spontaneously. They're acting energetically as they make their way out of Jerusalem for safekeeping, and they go through the various towns and villages of Judea and then into Samaria. And wherever they go, what are they doing? They're gossiping the gospel. They're just telling the story. Why are you not in Jerusalem? Why have you come here? Why have you... Why have you come to our village? Why are you visiting great Aunt Jemima there? Uh, And why have you not brought any suitcases? And where is the the rest of your family? And and why have you come without telling us you were coming? Well, this is the story. Story is this, that that we found the Messiah. The Messiah was killed. The Messiah is alive again. And we've we've come to believe in Him. We've found the Messiah. That's why we're, we're running away from Jerusalem, because they're persecuting the people who've accepted the Messiah. In other words, They're only saying what they know. They're saying the facts that they know. They're gossiping the gospel. This is every member, evangelism. These are the people of God on the ground. And wherever they go, they say what they can say. You notice we're not told anywhere in the New Testament that that people who are not called to preach the Word have got to be able to articulate in perfect terms every nuance of Christian doctrine or theology. You merely say what you know. You say what you know when people ask you, you're able to give a reason for the answer, an answer for the reason, the question why you believe at all in God. The great Yale historian Kenneth Scott Latourette says that the chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession, but men and women who carried on their livelihood in some secular manner and spoke their faith to those they met in this natural fashion that the expansion of the church at this point didn't depend on the apostles, but on the grassroots, men and women gossiping the gospel wherever they went. Now you think about it for these moments. These people, these people are getting away from trouble. They've lost their homes. They're scattered the same day that the persecution begins. They've left many of their belongings behind them. They may have left members of their family behind. They may have seen the last thing 
they'd seen as they left was perhaps one of their own family, one of their friends being pulled away to jail or, or to death. And you would think they would lie low. You would think they would keep quiet. You'd think they'd hide out. But no, as they go, they gossip the gospel. This is how God uses people in evangelism. You don't need a degree in evangelism. You don't, you don't need trained, actually, even in evangelism. You just say what you know. You say what you know, however falteringly you say it, however weak you may feel in saying it. You say what you know. You say what you understand. Now, what were they, what were they doing? Were they giving a sermon? No. The word preaching isn't used of what they did. They weren't giving a sermon. Were they talking about their experience? You know, I don't know about you, but I was brought up in a background where people occasionally gave their testimony. And one of the ways in which you were meant to express your Christian faith, if anyone asked you, was you were supposed to give them your testimony. Now, I remember as a young person, a quite young person, wanting to be able to talk about my faith at school because I was challenged. People invariably said, what did you do at the weekend? So I told them what I did on Saturday and then said nothing about Sunday. And they said, well, what did you do Sunday? Well, Sunday for us was church. All day, there was church in the morning, there was Sunday school in the afternoon, there was church in the evening. And uh, so all I could say was, it was church all day on Sunday. Well, so why do you go to church? Well, this was a big question that used to vex me. Because I'd heard these people talk about having a testimony. Do you have a great testimony? Well, let me tell you what a good testimony looks like. We used to sing a chorus when I was six years of age. The chorus was this, years I spent in vanity and pride. <laughs> Years I spent in vanity and pride, knowing not my Lord was crucified. No, all that stuff. And uh, that's free, by the way, uh, the, the, the song uh, and the accent. And, uh, but, but how can you talk about years I spent in vanity and pride when you're only six, for goodness sake? <laughs> and then when you, when, you know, so I'm thinking... How can I tell a story in which I was a gangster and I did all these really bad things and then the Lord saved me? That seems to be the only kind of testimony that really counts. Well, that was, it was such a relief to discover as I, as I went on in my Christian life, such a relief to discover that actually the witness of the early Christians, the kind of testimony you find in the New Testament, is not a testimony about what has, the change that has happened to me, and it is interesting to read the stories of people when they've been changed in that dramatic way. But that's not really what testimony and witness are in the New Testament. It's testimony to what God has done in Jesus. I talk about Him. I talk about His resurrection. I point them to those facts, those facts of history. That's what they talk about when you read the book of Acts and the people get up to give a, a reply. What do they talk about? About their own experience? No. We have the experience of Paul, of course, but, but when he's preaching the gospel, when he's, when he's not standing in a court of law having to defend why, he, why he's actually a preacher of the gospel today instead of the Pharisee he used to be, and he talks about his background, when he's actually speaking in response to someone who's asking the question, what is it you believe? He doesn't talk about himself. He talks about the gospel, the things that God has done in Christ God raising him from the dead. Really saying to people this, look, there's all this evidence that Jesus is alive. 
you need to look at that evidence for yourself. I, I'm, I'm, I'm useless at talking about this, but I know places you can go and people you can speak to and books you can read that go over the evidence for you, and you ought to yourself, you ought to yourself before you're dead to look into the question, what is it in Christianity that has had such an impact on the world? Look at the resurrection for yourself. Anybody here could say that to someone, couldn't you? Of course you could. You probably do, regularly. So they were gossiping the gospel. Well, the second, the second movement in the story is that there were these other people who were getting the gospel because the focus, the next focus, is on the response. And it was a good response to the gospel, especially in Samaria. Now, that's very unexpected. You see, we're so used to knowing the story that, that it isn't unexpected, but it was unexpected then. The people then found this very strange, that the gospel got a good response in Samaria. Now, we know from reading the Bible, for example, in, in John's gospel, we're told by John that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And you know, if you know anything, and you do because you go to 10th, uh, you know that, that the pilgrims who were making their way from, say, the north down to Jerusalem to go to some great festival, would, instead of coming the straight road which went through Samaria, they would, they would cross the river and they would follow the outside and then they would come in at the bottom. We wanted to do that. We were in the south of France. France went into gridlock, one of their very many strikes, in which all their major highways were blocked by truck drivers. And so the only way for us to get from the bottom of France to the top of France to get our, to get our boat home to the UK was to go out of France into Italy and then drive up through Italy and Switzerland and Luxembourg and Belgium and then in little side roads avoiding the trucks that were blocking the highways sneak back into France and get our ship home. Well, that's what they did, these Jews did, to avoid going through Samaria. Samaria was a kind of no man's land. Samaria had the remnants of the ten tribes of Israel that had separated hundreds of years before from the Davidic kingdom to the south. And they developed their own religion. They held to the book of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected all the rest. When Assyria invaded Samaria and took the capital city in the year 722 BC, they carried off the people. They repopulated the city with outsiders who intermarried. And so the view of the Jews was that the people of Samaria were a kind of hybrid race. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, called them half-breeds. When the Greeks invaded about 150 years before Jesus, the Jews resisted the Greeks. Judas Maccabeus and all, in all that, that's why the Jews still celebrate Hanukkah, the, the Feast of Candles and Lights in honor of Judas Maccabeus who resisted the Greeks. But the Samaritans capitulated to the Greeks. Not only that, but they set up the Greek god Zeus in their own dedicated temple there in Samaria. So the Jews didn't really have much time for the Samaritans. And the Samaritans weren't looking for a king from the line of David. They were looking for a prophet like Moses, but they disregarded all the rest. So why does Philip go to Samaria as a good Jew? Well, he remembered Jesus' words. You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. No doubt he remembered that the Lord Jesus himself had reached out to a Samaritan leper and healed him, cleansing his uncleanness. 
that on one occasion Jesus had drunk from the same cup as a Samaritan woman and had offered the Samaritan woman living water. And she'd taken it. She'd come to see him as the Messiah. So Philip goes to Samaria as the first evangelist in the New Testament. And what does he preach there? Well, there are no concessions to Samaritan sensibilities. Uh, he, he would have remembered. He would have remembered that when Jesus was talking to Samaritans, he made no concessions to S Samaritan sensibilities. He made it quite clear to this Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews. You don't believe that, but that's what is being revealed. Salvation is of the Jews. The Savior is going to be a Jew. He's going to be of David's line, whether you like whether you like it or not, or believe it or not. That's the way it is. Jesus said that to the woman, and Philip would have said that to the Samaritans. We know that because he proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah. Verse 5. He preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. And in verse 12, he made it possible for people to believe the word of God. Verse 14. He used Scripture to preach the good news of Jesus. Verse 35. The message he preached was the Word of God, verse 14. It was the Word of the Lord, verse 25. That is, it wasn't a humanly devised message. It wasn't something he had dreamed up. It was revealed to him by God. So when he talks about the message of the kingdom of God, well, he's thinking of David, David's throne. That's the kingdom. Jesus now sits on David's throne. He, he has been exalted to that throne which David spoke about. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make all your enemies your footstool. Jesus is the Messiah they needed, who comes in justification or judgment. He fulfills every, every biblical expectation of the coming kingdom of God. But here's people getting this. They get it. They believe it. They listen to this. They believe it. In some numbers, they believe it. And what is amazing is this surprising act of God, whereby despised Samaritans receive from one of these really uptight Jews the good news, and they welcome it gladly. Which leads us to the third part of the story, where we see some people guarding the gospel. That's verses 14 to 25. Because the Samaritans were in a kind of covenantal no-man's land between Jews and Gentiles, their conversion marked a major milestone in the advance of the gospel. Here was a major enemy of Israel brought into the fold of the church. And it's a kind of biblical theological reason why the Spirit had to publicly confirm the rightness of this move. Philip had gone out, you see, and these people had gone out gossiping the gospel. He'd gone into Samaria, but he, Philip wasn't an apostle. Philip was an evangelist. He didn't have the authority of an apostle. So it's not surprising then to find that the apostles who are the guardians of the message are immediately involved from verse 14 in doing two things, welcoming and winnowing, welcoming the people, first of all. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. And then, and then uh, we're told, Luke tells us this very interesting thing, that the Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. Now, when you read that, don't for one minute think that these people were not converted. 
Of course they were converted. They were born again. Nobody can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation and be baptized as an outward visible sign of their salvation unless the Holy Spirit of God has brought them to new birth, has created faith in their hearts. Faith is the gift of God. You can't have faith in the Lord Jesus and then be baptized as a result of that unless, unless the Spirit of God has worked that in you. No. The major difference was the Spirit had not fallen on these people. These people. Remember who these people are. There was us, and there was them. There were the Jews, and there was the Samaritans. So how could we know that these Samaritans actually had had the same experience we had? How could we know that these Samaritans were accepted as much or as well as we'd been accepted? What they needed, those Samaritans, was a repetition of Pentecost. Just as later on, when the first Gentiles are converted, there's going to be another repetition of Pentecost. And that'll be the end of it. No more repeats. The gospel has to go from Jews to Samaritans to Gentiles. So these apostles go down, you see, to welcome these new Christians. These are the founders and leaders of the early church. They go down to a witness God's official welcome. That's what happens. God outpours His Spirit on them. The Spirit falls on them as He had done on the Jews on the day of Pentecost. And as the apostles are there, as the official leaders of the church, they observe God's welcome of Samaritans into His kingdom. That's why they're down there. They're the representatives of the new Israel. And here they are embracing the remnants of the northern tribes symbolically and actually and seeing by this repetition of what happened to them, now happening to the Samaritans, seeing in that repetition that God was was bringing together again the split, divided, separated tribes of Israel and that now Israel was united in Christ under the leadership of the leaders of the new Israel. Here is a new Israel that unites believing Samaritans and believing Jews in one church. One church. There wasn't going to be a church of Samaritans and a church of Jews. There was going to be one church. And there wasn't going to be another church of Gentiles. There was going to be one church. And what is characteristic of that one church is this, that it is one. And it is apostolic. One of our creeds puts it like this, we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. It's a church of the apostles. And God is acknowledging, you see, the division and ending the division all at once by pouring out His Spirit in this public way on these Samaritans. It is one church. And they're going to share the same faith as their fellow Jews. It's a Catholic church. The same faith is shared both by Jews and Samaritans and later Gentiles. And it's an apostolic church. That is the message they hold to, the message that they are committed to is the apostolic message. Now, what do we, believe, what do we mean when we call the church an apostolic church? There are some, for example, who say that what makes the church the apostolic church is that it's united under the leadership of bishops. That having bishops 
is what makes the church apostolic. They continue the apostolic office today. Others say that what unites the church and makes it apostolic is where there is evidence of miraculous gifts like the apostles exercised. And you'll find that kind of teaching all over the place today. And if you close one eye and screw up the other eye and cross all your fingers and toes and and look at the kind of so-called miracles you see today, they nearly look like something like the miraculous gifts of the apostles. But that's about as far as you can say. Seriously. There's just no comparison. No comparison. And for over a thousand years, the church didn't have them. Didn't have them. So what happened to the church in that thousand years? Did it stop being an apostolic church? No. So what makes a church an apostolic church? The answer is the doctrine, the teaching. When, when, Paul, when Paul is saying farewell to, the Christ, to, to, to Timothy and he's uh, talking about his own death and saying, I'm, I'm leaving the church in your hands, no more apostles, I'm going to die, and the apostles are all going to be gone, what does he leave him? Does he say, I'm leaving a magical office of the bishop, or I'm leaving these magical spiritual gifts that, that are the hallmark? He says, none of those things. He says to Timothy, Timothy, I'm leaving you a deposit. The deposit is truth. The deposit is the word you've received. You keep it. You guard even the shape of it, the very form of those words as you've received them. The form of words we find in the Bible, those, we we aren't free to play around with them or to change those words. This is the form of sound doctrine. We keep it. That's what makes the church apostolic. Peter and John came down to check out, is this a work of God? was, they were happy, and they walked away. Well, they, they didn't just come welcoming, they also came winnowing, because among these new believers, there was one dud. There was this man, Simon. He was a sorcerer. He was a magician. The text makes it very clear that what, what he believed was, he believed he wanted the power that these people had. That's what he believed. Interesting, it says that he believed with the rest. In other words, he professed faith in Jesus like the rest did. But what he actually believed in was the power. That's what he wanted, the power. And that soon becomes apparent. He comes and he asks if he can buy the power, if he can buy the power from the disciples. What Peter says to him is, look, the Holy Spirit, gift of the Holy Spirit, that's the gift he's talking about, the gift of God. The Holy Spirit is not a commodity that can be traded in the market. The Holy Spirit gives himself freely. The Holy Spirit is a gift of God. And nor nor is the power of God something that is marketable. That is something that you can have at your beck and call and use as and when you will. That's not how it works. This is, I think, one of the great challenges when you think of some of these televangelists. It looks as if the power of God is something that, that is at their beck and call. Peter is saying that is not the case. That is not the case. The power of God is not at your beck and call. It's a sovereign work of God. God does it. God does it. What this man Simon wanted was control. He wanted control over the power of God. He wanted to know the ritual. What do I have to do to make this work? What do I have to do to make this work? And the response of Peter is, you need to repent. You don't get it. These people get it. You don't get it. You just don't get 
the gospel. And he challenges Simon about his attempt to handle and work and manipulate the Spirit of God. Now, we don't do that, of course. We don't, we don't come to God and pray, I hope, that we don't do this. You know, God, I, I, you know, I'll pay money. I'll pay money so that I have the power of the Spirit available. We don't do that, but sometimes we think that if only we put in more hours of voluntary work for God's kingdom, that that will make us feel better about our Christian life and that somehow or other we'll, that's a big, great evidence of devotion. And people will see that and they'll be happy. They'll be congratulated us for how hard we work for the kingdom. Or if, if only we read our Bible more, or if we pray more, God will be somehow or other, we'll, we'll be able to coerce God to do more for us. Almost like, you know, you look after me and I'll look after you. That kind of approach to God. And, and we're really, what we're doing is a, another form of what Simon the sorcerer did. We want God to jump to our tune. We want God to kind of do a deal with us. Well, he doesn't do deals. He doesn't do deals. Well, the passage then is about getting the gospel out, the growth of the gospel. It's a major moment in the history of the church. This doesn't happen again. This is not repeated today. There are no two-tier Christianity. There is no two-tier Christianity. There, among Christians, there are not haves and have-nots. You either have the Spirit or you're not a Christian. That's the bottom line. You get the Spirit by receiving Jesus. He is the Spirit of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word this Christmas time reminds us of the incredible gift of the Lord Jesus and the gift of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that that gift is freely given to unworthy sinners and is ours by your grace alone. Help us to embrace it, we pray, as we embrace him, him for himself. We ask in his strong name.